Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, the story does tie in because the series that we're in is called Contending, which is about fighting. And we've chosen this series, Contending for the Faith, in the book of Jude, in the short letter of Jude, because we're in the midst in our culture of a time when everybody's fighting for all kinds of different reasons. It's a very contentious, conflict-ridden time in our culture. And so we want to look at Scripture and say, well, what, what are we actually supposed to fight for? And how are we supposed to fight? So if you have a Bible, turn to Jude. We're going to be in Jude for four weeks. We started last week with identity. This week, we're looking at verses 3 and 4. We're just calling it simply contend. The main theme of contending for the faith is introduced in verse 3, contend. I told you last week that the word contend can mean either fighting in war or it can mean struggling in an athletic contest. And we have to be clear that we are called not to fight with the weapons of flesh and blood with the weapons of warfare today in the same way that the Old Testament saints were. There are definitely jobs where fighting is required, police and soldiers, and many of you are soldiers. Romans 13 talks about that, but the church fights in a different way. We contend for different things, and we contend with different weapons. We contend with the means of grace, with the proclamation of the goodness of God, His Word. We, we pray, we serve, we have different weapons that we use in this fight that God has called us to. Um, When I was a kid, 17 years old, I spent a lot of time contending and fighting for a reputation. I contended and I sacrificed that I would be someone that I thought was important, that I would have some sort of popularity. I played sports when I was a kid. I was never really great at it. I loved football um, and I was never quite big enough to play high school football by uh, Texas large school standards. So I really had to contend even to get a position to play on the team. I was never very coordinated. I was never very big, but I was willing to sacrifice. And so in high school, I can remember uh, two-a-days. We would have these summer practices and to adapt to the heat, because you know in Central Texas in August when you start football practice, it's like 110 every day. And so they would have us not wear all of our pads, just wear our helmets for a few days to let our bodies get used to being out in the sun for several hours a day. And so I can remember contending and fighting and scrapping for a position. I would just go full speed even though I didn't have pads on. So I'm not wearing any shoulder pads, hitting people that have helmets on, and the the face masks would dig ruts into my shoulders. I still have some scars on my shoulders from these gashes and cuts I would get over and over again. I was making sacrifices and contending so that I could have a place on the team, so that I could be a part of that family. I can remember another time, my senior year, no, junior year, yeah, I was like 17 years old. We were having a practice in the spring. We were running through drills without any pads at all. We were just running to our place, you know, handing off the ball, passing, kind of stepping into our blocks. And something went wrong. We weren't wearing any pads. I took an elbow to the nose. I think maybe it was because it's a big target. But I took an elbow to the nose early on in the practice, and we were going to be out there for like an hour and a half or two hours running through these plays and my nose would just not stop bleeding. Um, But as a young high school kid, that was a a mark of importance to me. That was like, hey, look at me. I'm willing to contend for a spot here. And I can remember thinking, wow, the coaches are going to be really impressed with me as I cover my shirt and my shorts and my shoes with blood. I was just gushing blood everywhere. And my coaches just kind of stoically nodded approval from the side, you know. Um, And I share those ridiculous... uh, analogies, stories with you, because they're examples of someone being willing to sacrifice 
being willing to bleed for what was important. But now, as a grown man, I look back and I'm like, that was kind of stupid, silly things that I was sacrificing for, right? I was just sacrificing for a spot on the team. I was just sacrificing for my coach's approval. I was just sacrificing to make myself feel better about myself. And often, that's the kinds of sacrifices that we're making today. Often, we are fighting to look important. Often we're fighting to win ourselves a spot on the team that we want to be on or to be a part of the group that we want to be a part of. And that's not the kind of contending, that's not the kind of struggling that Jesus calls us to. It's interesting, one of the few places in the New Testament that talks about Christians being willing to spill their blood for something that matters is in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author to the Hebrews says, you haven't even come to the point in fighting sin where you are spilling your own blood. Wait, what's he talking about? He's talking about spilling your own blood in your fight against sin. Most of us are willing to sacrifice for selfishness to get what we want, but not in our resistance of sin. Jude is talking about resisting sin, fighting to love God and to love other people, and fighting with the weapons of trust in him, of serving others in love, of believing his word. So the big question is, what are we willing to contend for? And how do we contend? Another cross-reference before we get into this text is Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Because of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And that is your spiritual act of worship. Are you willing to offer yourself, in the context of the New Testament, the sacrifice that we should be willing to make, the contending, the fighting, that we should engage in is fighting against our own selfish desires, fighting against our own preferences, and offering ourselves up to Jesus and to those around us. Let's read in Jude, verses 3 through 4, Jude's emphasis on contending, on fighting for grace. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, I started off focusing on our common salvation, but... I really have to call you to contend for this faith that was delivered to you. There's danger. There are people creeping in that are going to draw you away from true grace to draw you after sensuality, selfishness, and sin. But Jude is calling us, even today, 2,000 years later, to contend for what's really true and what is really good. Let me pray for us and pray for our time that we would hear the Scriptures and hear the gospel as he speaks to us from Jude. God, we thank you for your word. We believe that you speak to us in your word, but we believe we need your Holy Spirit to meet us so that supernaturally we would receive you and receive what you have to say. So help us to be hearers. Help us to learn what you're saying, to to love it, to, to live it out in our lives. Will you transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is to contend, to struggle, to strain. The Greek words agonizomai, we get agony, and that can mean fighting in war. It can also mean struggling and striving as a runner or an athlete strives. 
But we're not striving for ourselves. We're not striving for our tribe or our agenda. We're striving to keep faith in Jesus, in the grace of a God who would forgive us and reconcile us to himself, who adopts us into his family through the cross. And so as Jude begins this argumentation, he's just going to introduce the main idea of contending, and then the next two weeks we're going to get a lot more details on the ideas he introduces today. So I'm going to try to give you a big picture introduction where Jude starts and where other New Testament letters kind of cross-reference this. And then Jude has a lot more to say in the next two weeks, okay? So today, just in verse 3 and 4, we're going to see the idea, number one, that we should contend for the faith, the faith. We don't just contend for any faith or anything or ourselves. We contend for the faith. The second thing we'll see is that we are going to contend for good leaders, good leaders. And then the third thing we'll see is we have to contend for true grace, True grace, not the grace that they're perverting, twisting, but true grace. So, number one, contend for the faith. So, this is the definite article in English. I'm not a grammar pro, but this means a particular faith, a set faith. It's not just anything, but it's the faith. We're not contending for other ideas. We're not contending for whims or preferences, but this particular faith. The word faith typically is something we do, right? We believe in something. That Greek word can be translated as belief or faith or trust. We trust in the message delivered to us that Jesus gave himself for us, that he took our sins on the cross, he gives us his righteousness through his resurrection by faith. We trust in him. And then we've also got a couple of places here and in Galatians 1 where faith is not just the thing we do, but it's used to talk about the thing we have faith in. And so this is one of those places where it's talking about The faith means, what do we have faith in? We have faith in the message of Jesus. That's the way he's using the word here as the content of our faith, the stuff we have faith in. That's what he's talking about, the faith. And here's an interesting little context. He says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so he starts off with an although there in the English Standard Version, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the idea is kind of a contrast here. He starts off wanting to talk about common salvation, but instead talks about contending for the faith. And the Greek is a little murky. I like how the ESV translates it because it kind of leaves the murkiness there. Here's the main idea. He's writing to us to contend for the faith. That's the main idea. Uh, People that study the Greek argue about like, is he saying he was going to write about a common salvation? He stopped that and instead is writing to contend for the faith. That's one interpretation. Or he started writing about common salvation, and in that writing about common salvation has now focused on contending for the faith. Either way, what's the main idea? He's saying contend for the faith, right? So I just want to encourage you that even when Greek scholars disagree and one translation might be different than the other uh, with the although or the nevertheless, you know, those little attachment words here, it's clear the main idea is still the same main idea. He's saying, I'm writing to you to contend for the faith. I'm writing to you to contend for this faith. And what is the faith? It's a faith that was once for all, very particular, once for all delivered to the saints. Who are the saints? The saints are you and me who believe. So sometimes in traditional traditional religion, the word saint is just used for the biggest and best believers or the most important famous Christians. That is not how the word is used in the New Testament. So I'm not going to take time to beat those people up for, for using that, right? It's so common in our culture that, you know, 
I just kind of go along with it sometimes, right? We talk about St. Nicholas and St. Paul and that kind of thing. That's fine, but we're all saints, okay? We're all saints. That's how the New Testament describes us. We belong to Jesus. So if you have faith in Jesus, he has set you apart. He's adopted you into his family. That's initial sanctification. It's the same word for holy. He's making you holy. He's bringing you onto his team. And then we also use that term for the ongoing uh, process of making us more and more like Jesus. We call that sanctification. So it's a point in time. You're on his team. You're a saint. You're holy. And then it's an ongoing work. He makes you more and more like Jesus. He helps you throw off those sins and hindrances that you had in the past. So initial bringing you into the family, an ongoing process. Either way, you're a saint, okay? You're a saint who's also being sanctified. So in context here, he's saying, This faith, this content was once and for all delivered to the saints. It was given to all of us, not just to special church leaders, but to all of us. The faith, the content, the message is what makes us saints. It's what makes us his people. A great cross-reference section for this is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about focusing on things of first importance And the gospel message is the content, right? The truth about Jesus who was sacrificed for our sins, who rose from the dead. That message that God has taken your sins and placed them on Christ, that he's set you free from sin, that he loves you, that he's adopted you. That message is the content of the faith and it's been given to you. It's this heritage entrusted to all of us. We all are to guard and protect this together. This word delivered also is a really important word in the New Testament. The word delivered can mean tradition. It's something passed down. There are many places where the, um, the noun and the verb are together. Uh, so it's often translated the tradition is delivered or the tradition is passed down. But we could translate it just to show that it's the same Greek word. The tradition is traditioned to you is kind of what it is in Greek, right? So that's this word deliver. He's saying this tradition has been given to you. What's this tradition? The message of Jesus. And we have to really be clear about this because there's a lot of debate about tradition, right? Tradition's not always bad, but sometimes it is. And Jesus often talked about tradition as a negative thing. Why? It's not because he hated all traditions. It's because sometimes tradition pushes out the more important thing, which is the message of Jesus Christ. So if we have a tradition that's good, that helps us lift up Jesus, that's great. Keep doing it, right? If we have a tradition that's pushing out Jesus and making it hard for people to hear and see who he is, we've got to throw that tradition aside. So if you want to do a word search on that, you'll find Jesus sometimes saying, man, y'all are, y'all are messed up because you're following the traditions of men instead of obeying God. That's where it goes wrong. And so part of the work we have to do is being very clear about what is the tradition of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, that faith once and for all delivered to the saints that narrow bullseye of truth that we have faith in, and then the everything else. There are some everything else's that are completely contrary to the gospel. We throw it out. We say, not here. There are other things that are just our way of doing things, our tradition, our gray carpet tradition. Our services are at 9 and 11. We do expository preaching. I use a microphone. We use climate control, but because of the pandemic, we open the door. You know, there are things we do which are just the way we've chosen to do things. And a church always has to be clear on, this is how we do things, and this is the message. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
missionaries are really good at this when they go to a foreign country. They go to a foreign country and they have to do the hard work of saying, this is the message of the gospel and this is a unique tradition of the people in this place. It's not my tradition, but you know what? I could start participating in this tradition because it's not a bad one. It's a good one. And that's part of the hard work we all have to do. Missionaries are usually more clear about it, but we all have to do that, especially as our culture becomes less and less a Christianized culture. You know, it becomes more and more anti-Christian. We have to all live like missionaries. Like, okay, my friend does some things different than me. Some of these things are contrary to Scripture and contrary to the message of the gospel. I can't do those things. Other things my friend does, they're just secondary issues. We can enjoy this weird food I've never had before, right? Uh, We can enjoy this music or this way of doing things because it's not contrary to Scripture. And so we always have to do the hard work of separating out what's the truth that's been delivered to us, the faith, the content of the gospel, and then what's the everything else stuff? What What are the differences? Are you growing in your discernment and your ability to tell the difference between those two things? I think a really good way to think about this is passing the baton in a relay race. And so if you're running a relay race, you've got to pass the baton to the next guy. You've got to pass the baton to the next guy. And there are different rules based on the relays about the distance. You know, they only have so many feet to make the, the, the handoff. Um, but if, if you have the best time and your team beats everybody else, but you dropped the baton along the way, you don't win the race. And so I like to think about the baton as the truth of Jesus. That's what we're passing on. And we can step back and go, but look at how well we ran and look at how good we looked in our uniforms, right? We can, we can get sidetracked with the wrong thing. Have we passed on, the way Paul talks about it with Timothy, the good deposit? Are you guarding this good deposit of the truth of the gospel? Jesus Christ, dying for you, living the perfect life you couldn't live, dying in your place, taking your sins upon the cross, giving you his righteousness. Are you clear about, are you crystal clear about that? So that's the content. That is the faith. It's really important that you would learn it and know it. So I have an application for that. I want to expand out a couple of circles of the content of biblical truth that I think will help us to be clearer about the gospel because our culture has gotten to a point where where none of us really know the Bible anymore. A couple other things I want you to be clear about, the contents of truth that God wants to pass on to you. One of us is a really important doctrine that we consider kind of a foundation of historic Christian orthodoxy, and that's called the Trinity. Anybody ever heard this phrase before? The Trinity? The Trinity is basically who God is. God is three persons. God is one God. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to recommend a resource to you if you're fuzzy on this, because it can be confusing. The biblical revelation of who God is is the Trinity. It's a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And this book is fantastic. Number one, it's short. (laughs) It's not too long. Number two, he's got a sense of humor. Number three, he shows how the Trinity is the foundation for this gospel we just talked about. The good news of God coming after us in salvation. The Trinity, a God who is a community in love, reaching out to us and inviting us into his community of love. It's a really beautiful connection point to help us be more clear about the gospel. One other thing I encourage you to study up on, and that is the Ten Commandments, what I would call biblical morality. So the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law, and we know it's God's most important summary of law because in the Old Testament, he wrote it on tablets and had his people store it in a golden box, right? 
So if you're like me and you read all of Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, oh my word, there are so many rules and laws here, it can be overwhelming, right? What if God took a highlighter and highlighted the most important things? Wouldn't that be helpful? Well, he has done that. They're called the Ten Commandments. He said, these are really important. I'm going to etch them in stone and have you store them in the center of your place of worship so you don't forget them, right? And nine of these are explicitly repeated in the New Testament. So sometimes Christians, you know, disagree over how do we know which things we're bound by and which we're not, because we're not Israelites. We're not under the old covenant. We are now under the new covenant, right? So we don't, we don't keep all the same food laws and ceremonial temple laws and all of that. We don't, we're not bound by all that, even though all of it gives us insight into the character of God. We're not bound to them. So what are we bound to? What is the morality that we are to keep. It's pretty clearly nailed down in the Ten Commandments. It can be found in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to know what God is calling you to live up to, Exodus 20 is a great place to study. The one commandment that's not as explicitly repeated in the New Testament is the commandment about the Sabbath. And it's also the commandment, because of that, that Christians tend to disagree about the most. And so I just want to make the case that we consistently have the same morality Old Testament and New Testament, nine out of 10 are super easy. That, that other one that we disagree about is the fourth commandment is the one that's not as explicitly repeated. But even in Hebrews, we're told to rest from our works in Jesus. So to some degree, we, we are to fulfill that even as we believe in Jesus. And here's the irony. Um, it's the easiest commandment to keep, right? Like that's, that's the commandment where God says, take a nap, trust me, right? That's, that's my modern interpretation of the Sabbath. Take a nap and trust me, and uh, that's not that hard to keep when you think about it, right? It's the most gracious of the commandments. So we can disagree about all the different ways that we could keep that, but even that one makes sense as a coherent part of New Testament morality that agrees with Old Testament morality. So learn the commandments. But let me back up again. Let's go back to what is the faith? What's the content of the faith that's been delivered to us? It's the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. So here's a way for us to learn that more clearly. Memorize the Roman road. It's four verses in Romans, which helps us to memorize the truths of the gospel and internalize them so that we're more clear on it ourselves, right? We're contending for the faith in our own hearts, and that enables us to contend for it um, as a corporate body, as a church as well. So memorize the Roman road. I'm going to give you the the verses. You can look those up, and then we're going to move on. Romans 3.23. Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9, okay? I'm going to say it one more time. Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9. It's a great summary of the content of the faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints. Learn it. Learn it for yourselves. The next step of that process is love it more and more. Love the fact that the God of the universe has reached down to you in Christ. Love the fact that he's adopted you into his family and he delights in you. Love him. And then live this out. Living it out means you love other people because God first loved you. It means you tell other people this truth because God did this for you. It means you begin to obey him and serve others in love. So so learn the content of this faith delivered to you. Love it and then live it out. Now, that's how we contend in our own lives, which is the foundation 
for contending as a corporate body, for being a group of Christians working together. And so the next step is contend for good leaders. Contend for good leaders. It says in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. So we kind of wrestled back and forth. I'll do a sermon run through with some of my staff to get ideas on things I'm saying that are confusing. We wrestled with, should this be contend for good people? Because that's what it says in the text, right? Or contend for good leaders. I want to press you that he's speaking primarily about leaders, but that that line is blurry, right? So we're really contending for good people in the body of Christ. But this mirrors 2 Peter chapter 2, where he's very explicitly saying the same thing about false teachers. And the way that Jude talks in the rest of the letter mirrors the way that the Bible in other places talks about false teachers. So we believe from content that or context that he's primarily speaking about false teachers, leaders, right? But in the church, all believers are a leader to some extent. We're, we're all called to be servants in the body of Christ. And so we have to admit that these are blurry lines, that we can all have influence over others, and we're called to have influence over others. So we want to contend for good leaders, good influencers in the body of Christ. This is in contrast to what kind of leaders? Well, bad ones, right? Bad leaders. He says, here, they've crept in unnoticed. So these are sneaky people sneaking in to the church, trying to go unnoticed, right? What's an image that we have biblically of people sneaking in, trying to be unnoticed? Well, it's the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 7. He's like, watch out for these false prophets. They're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. There are cartoons about this as well, right? The wolf dresses up and puts on a sheepskin so he can sneak in with the sheep and eat them all, right? He wants to kill them. He wants to eat them all. He wants to take advantage of the flock. Yet a shepherd is supposed to care for and nurture the sheep, that's a pretty big contrast. So they're creeping in, they're acting out what Jesus warned us about in Matthew 7. And then we have another parallel with Matthew 7. Jesus says, how are you going to notice these sneaky wolves in sheep's clothing? You're going to notice them by their fruit. You're going to notice them by the good works or bad works that their life produces. So Jude is going to say a similar thing here. He's going to say they've crept in unnoticed. Long ago, they were designated for condemnation, right? He's saying in the sovereignty of God, these bad guys are designated for condemnation. They're in trouble. They're going to be judged for this, but you've got to deal with them as well. You can't just accept them as leaders of your congregation. And then he says they're ungodly people. Now, again, I, I think I mentioned this. Verses 5 through 16 are going to give us a lot more detail about false teachers and in what ways they're ungodly people and everything. But we'll just start with this phrase. They're ungodly. That means they're bad. They're not doing good things. They're doing bad things. They're being selfish. They're indulging themselves. The next phrase, the second half of this verse that we're going to get to in the next point, is they're trying to give themselves an excuse for sensuality, for feeding their flesh, for following their own desires, not obeying God's rules, but doing their own thing. And so they're ungodly. So here's the thing. I love to study theology and if you're going to have me analyze a teacher based on just what they teach, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like, I'd be happy to, if you have somebody gives you a book and you're like, I'm not sure about this, I'd be happy to look at it and go, okay, well, we can analyze what they're saying, right? 
I've studied enough theology where, where I'm okay with that. That's, that's part of the giftingness and the role that I have in the church, right? But what's cool here is Jude says, you don't always have to do that. You don't always have to analyze every word of the sermon. You can just look at their life. Do you see that? He gives us this other test. Just look at people's lives. If, you're, if you have like this red flag in your head, like, I don't, I'm not sure about what they're saying. Look at their life. And Jude says here, don't, don't tolerate leaders that are just ungodly and selfish and doing their own thing. Here's some cross-references for what this should look like. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, known as pastoral epistles, it tells us how to organize the church. It says these are the kinds of leaders you should have. 1 Timothy chapter 3, you should have leaders that love their families and are faithful and they're not drunkards and they're not fighters, right? He lays out, this is what their life should look like. Titus chapter 1 does the same thing. It's also called a pastoral epistle. It's like, these are what leaders should look like. Titus chapter 1. And then 1 Peter chapter 5. Very similar. In 1 Peter, he lays out not just what your life should look like, but he adds this extra thing of leaders should be humble, right? They should be humble. And so that brings us to an application point. Shepherds should be humble, and that means if you're alarmed about something going on in my life, let's just make it very specific, my life, one of our elders' lives, your small group leader's life, a pastor's life, a leader at this church, if you're worried, talk to them about it, right? And if their attitude is like, how dare you ask me any questions, that's, that's a red flag, right? Because leaders are to be humble, and we are to lay our life out before you, and just say, yeah, you, you can ask me anything. And Matthew 18 says that's a larger principle for how Christians get along. If someone sinned against you, go talk to them about it. Don't start blogging about how terrible they are. Go talk to them about it, right? Help them to fix it and make it relational, make it personal. So that's an important application here. I grabbed a picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep. This is an image used again and again. Three words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament for leaders are the word bishop or overseer, which in the first century is kind of a word like, kind of like president or superintendent. You know, it's just, it's just a generic word for leader, someone who oversees others. There's this other word, elder, which has the sense of like a council member, right? You're kind of like a decision maker that has to make final decisions for the church. And then this third word is pastor, but literally, that's the word shepherd. And so we are to feed and lead and care for the flock. Also, protect the flock from false teachers, from wolves, protect from predators. So it's this idea of nurturing. And so that's what we should look for in leaders officially, right? I'm an official leader of the church. The next church you go to, you look for those kinds of leaders, that kind of character of leadership. But also, it's the kind of people we should be as God's people. So... There are official leaders in a church. There's everybody else in a church, but everybody else is supposed to live like a leader, right? Because we all have influence. We're all leading somebody. We should all have that character that we're aspiring to, loving and serving and nurturing others in God's word. So contend for good leaders. Be the kind of leader that you want your leaders to be, but also talk to your leaders if you ever see something that's weird. Here's another one. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. God works through prayer. I am so thankful that we have a community where people pray for me. And not just that, I'm going to be extra selfish here. I think this is a good part of it. Tell people when you're praying for them, right? 
I appreciate that so much when I get a note and people say, I've been praying for you. How are you doing? I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? That's so important. And not just for me. Here's, here's the cool thing. As a senior pastor, I, I get a lot of that attention because I'm the most visible leader at this church. Will you do that for your small group leaders? Can you do that for your mentors? Can you even go back in time and go, okay, well, they're not here, but, but at my last duty station or when I was in college or when I was growing up, I had this Sunday school teacher that made such a huge impact on me. Can you, can you pray for them still? Can you write them a note or a text and say, I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? Thank you for the impact you've made. As you pray for spiritual leaders, that helps them to grow, right? Because this is a supernatural fight that we're involved in. We're not using the weapons of guns and knives here. We're praying with spiritual weapons. We're using spiritual power as we pray and intercede and talk to God. Okay, last point. Contend for true grace. Now, this is all tangled up with everything he said before, but in verse 4, the second half, he says these ungodly leaders pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Pervert. That word literally is twist, right? So there's grace, and people can talk about grace and say they love grace, but then they can start twisting it into something that it's not. That's what he's talking about here. Using grace as an excuse for sensuality, taking advantage of other people, sexual conquest. And he goes on also and says, and denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is why earlier when I was talking about contending for the faith and we wanted to know the content of our faith, we need to know not just the gospel, the forgiveness we have in Christ, but the law, the obedience that God calls us to. Because this is such a common problem in today's world where we say, grace means you get to do whatever you want to. Grace means you don't have to obey God. Grace means It doesn't matter how you live, but actually the New Testament says grace changes you. Grace is a supernatural power by which the God of the universe grabbed hold of you, brought you into his family, and now you have a new love for him, and you have a new desire to do what he says. That's true grace. Don't turn the grace of God into an excuse to ignore God, to walk away from God. Grace is a power that compels you to love God and want to follow him. And so I've got a few different ways that this is communicated on, on the uh, screen here. You can take a picture of this because I'm going to list out several different ways. So in the New Testament, grace and faith are used pretty interchangeably, right? So just to define it real quick, a grace is it's a free gift. You didn't earn it. That's what grace means. Faith is you're trusting in him. You're not doing anything to be saved, but trusting in the grace of what he's already done. So those terms are used very interchangeably. They're almost the same thing, but slightly differently, right? Faith is trusting what God has done. Grace is just a statement of like, he did it, right? It's his gift. You can't merit it. So in these uh, little formulas I'm going to share with you, I'm going to talk about faith, salvation, and works, and how they work together. So one way of talking about it is that faith leads to salvation plus works, plus good works, Second way that people often talk about it is faith plus good works then leads to salvation. The third way people often talk about it is faith leads to salvation minus works, no works, doesn't matter, right? (laughs) Don't change, who cares? And that one is the one that Jude is talking about here. This twisting of grace to mean it doesn't matter what you do. Now to be clear, your doing is not what saves you. That's the true thing about grace, 
But that doesn't mean then you don't want to start changing and doing what he says you should do, right? So we come with the open hands of faith. God, your grace alone has saved me. I could never do enough to be saved. And he says, I forgive you. I save you. You're in my family. That means we have the assurance of salvation. We start walking with him and start doing new things. We're already saved, and now we're doing good work. So um, I like to circle the top one, cross out the bottom two. So the bottom two are opposed very explicitly in the New Testament. Faith plus works leads to salvation. That is cut down hardcore by Galatians. Read the letter of Galatians. That's the false view of grace and faith and works that's being wrestled with in that book of the Bible in Galatians. So Galatians opposes that second view. The third one, faith leads to salvation without works. James, his letter opposes that really strongly. And that's why sometimes people have a hard time reconciling Galatians and James because they say seemingly opposite things. It's not really opposite. They seem to be saying opposite things because they're opposing two different false views of the gospel, okay? So Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, is the best summary, shortest summary that puts it all together at the top. Faith leads to salvation plus works. Faith leads to salvation plus works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is really clear about that. It's not just faith leads to salvation and then you never change. No, you start to change. Now here, let's be clear. How does this work in real life? Does that mean that once you're saved, you stop sinning? Is that what it means? No. But does it mean you try to stop sinning? Yeah. Yeah, you try to stop sinning. And John talks about that in 1 John. He's like, yeah, it doesn't mean you're without sin completely, right? But you're, you're working on it, right? You're headed in that direction. You're following Jesus. And so some days you sin a lot and you recognize all the more how much you need his grace, but you don't love it. You're not satisfied to stay there. Matter of fact, you hate it. It disgusts you. You're like, I'm so glad that God accepts me by grace. And you, you dust yourself off and you, you keep going. And you ask a friend to pray for you. You confess your sins to God. You confess your sins to a neighbor, right? First John 1 John 1.8.9 says, this is how we have a real honest relationship with God. We confess. We admit our sins. And we know that he's our only solution. And then James 5.16 puts that in the context of community. It says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. If we don't really understand grace, we're either going to, like Jude talks about it, use it as just an excuse to keep walking away from God and, and sinning, or we're going to misunderstand that we're not saved by grace, we're saved by how good we are. And you know what that does? That makes us lie about our sin and try to cover it up and pretend it's not there. And so only a true understanding of grace helps us to really follow Jesus. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, uh, a friend reminded of me of this the other day. He really clarifies that it doesn't make sense to say you believe in grace and not obey God. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Like if grace is what covers our sin, should we keep sinning so we can get more grace? How does Paul answer that? In Romans 6.2, Paul says, by no means. If you're reading this at home, it's probably good to shout it while you're reading it. By no means. My first Bible translation, I think it said, may it never be. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It just doesn't even make sense. If you really see that the God of the universe has given you grace, that he loves you and he's forgiven you, you're going to want to follow him. You're going to want to start 
pursuing him. You're not going to perfectly do everything right every day, but you're going to keep following him. You're going to keep growing. You're going to keep moving towards him in love. So by way of application, is there an area in your life, in my life, that we're excusing? That we're saying, ah, it doesn't matter, Grace. Or are we continuing to grow and to confess those sins and say, God, I need more grace. Help me to move forward. Taking on that next step of then confessing it to one another. Finding a buddy, a friend, a spouse, a roommate saying, you pray for me, I need help. We can't do this on our own. We need friends helping us, walking alongside us, holding us accountable as we understand true grace and try to grow in new life. Um, if you're thinking about starting what we call a three-by-five group at our church, this just really, we use that term to say three people doing five things, right? Share your high, share your low, read a scripture, share what it means, and then pray for one another, right? So we've got instructions for how to do this on our website under join a group. You can start your own group. You can confess your sins one to another. Uh, we've said before, we say this a, a lot, we have existing groups as well, celebrate recovery or recovery groups where you can do that. Women's Bible studies, men's breakfasts, small groups and classes that meet at the church. But you can also just start a group with one or two other people. And if you want to do that, not only do we have instructions on how to do that online under join a small group, we also will coach you, right? Like contact the church office. We'd love to help you. Uh, one of our pastors, Jim Wilson, helps small group leaders get things going like this. One of our elders has a particular passion for helping and coaching people as well. Um, I know Kathy, our women's ministry director, would help you also. So just contact the church office if you want someone to coach you. Like, okay, Dave said to do this. I want to do it, but it still sounds really weird, right? <laughs> if you're at that point of like wanting to step off that cliff into Christian community, confessing your sin and praying with others, we'd love to help you. We'd love to help you figure out what that looks like and help you take next steps. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Conclusion. Um, we often contend for the wrong things, right? I started off with the picture of me as a kid, you know, full of testosterone, willing to bleed, willing to contend, and yet I was contending for silly things. I was contending for a position on a team. I was contending for my own identity, and it's fascinating, in, in Hebrews 12, he says, you guys haven't even contended, you haven't even suffered to the point of shedding your own blood. In what? In your fight against sin. And so my question is, are we willing to contend for the right things, or are we just contending for our tribe? Are we willing to bleed, but we just want to bleed for our own importance? We just want to bleed for more money. We just want to bleed for more popularity. We just want to bleed for more power. Or are we willing to bleed in our pursuit of Jesus, as Hebrews 12 talks about? Even more than that, it's not so much about our bleeding, but it's about a Savior who bled for us. That's, that's the ultimate contending, is recognizing that he's the champion that fought for us, that fought, as 1 Corinthians 15 describes, to defeat the, the ultimate enemy of sin and death. In Ephesians 3, uh, Ephesians 2, 13, Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It says, contending for you that places you in his family. Learn that reality. Begin to love that reality and begin to then live it out for others. That's what contending means. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have filled us with your spirit 
and you've adopted us into your family. Thank you that you are the God that contends for us. So Lord, teach us what it means to to contend for this faith, to contend to keep believing you, to keep following you, and to, to serve others with what you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.